Father, we just want to thank you and praise you that we could be here this morning at Hernan Middle School for the first time. We're thankful that you have provided this place for us. And, and Lord, our, our prayer is very simple. And Lord, that is that you would simply glorify yourself uh, through our ability to use this space. That, Lord, you would make yourself known here in Herndon. That, Lord, you would use us as a church to let everyone know that joy is found in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, use us in this way. And, Father, I want to pray for our time this morning as we look into your word. And, Lord, I just love those songs we just sang. And, Lord, those are our prayers. Lord, would you speak what is true into our hearts? I pray as we read this text, Lord, that you would help us to understand that what we're reading is truth. And so, Lord, I pray that as we do this, that, that you, by your spirit, would you help us to be aware of and, and repent of the things in our lives that we value more than you. And I pray that your spirit would bring conviction in our hearts, very specific awareness as we study your word, and that you would convince us that the road of repentance in our life leads to joy. So Lord, I pray your spirit would do that in our hearts this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, isn't it funny how all of us as human beings, every one of us, we have this tendency to take something that is not about us and make it about us. Right? Have you noticed that about human beings? We, we all do this, okay? This is what social media has put into overdrive or the phenomenon of the selfie has put this into overdrive. Right, nowadays, you can't even make a great meal, you know, for your family or your friends and just let them enjoy it, right? You gotta put it on Instagram or you gotta share it with people on social media, take a picture of it. You know, if you meet someone who's famous or a celebrity, you know, now it's all about, you got to get your phone out and, and take the selfie. I don't know if you uh, realize this, if you watch the Super Bowl halftime show with Justin Timberlake. So he's out there performing, and then he starts going up into the stands of the stadium. And I don't know if you saw that teenage boy who was there, and he was so excited that Justin Timberlake is sitting next to him. He couldn't enjoy the moment because he couldn't get the camera open in his phone, and the moment passed by as he was staring on his phone and trying to get his camera out the whole time. Uh, this is one of the reasons why, for me personally, I've actually have taken a break from social media, like, because I'm not judging, because I have even found in my own life, I have this tendency to take every situation now, and it's now into a how, do I post this? Do I take a picture of this and share with everyone? Like, does everyone need to know about what I'm doing right now. And I've just have seen that that's starting to ruin how I enjoy life. What is it about our hearts as human beings that crave other people being impressed with us? I mean, we all have it inside of us. I'll confess, I, I do this every time I preach. Preaching is not about me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about declaring God's word. It's about teaching uh, all of us what God's word says. It's about proclaiming the gospel. All right, Preaching is about God. It's not about me. But my heart wants you to be impressed with me. 
right? I, I take something that's not about me and I make it about me. I heard this uh, funny story about Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene Peterson is a uh, Christian author. Some of you might be aware of him. He wrote uh, the Message Bible. It's like his paraphrase of the entire Bible. But he's a pretty prolific Christian author. And Bono, okay, lead singer of U2, uh, started to read some of his books. And so Bono just started to fall in love with this Eugene Peterson guy. And so Bono reached out to him and said, hey, uh, next time I'm in town on tour, I'd love to get dinner with you. And Eugene Peterson goes, who's Bono? (laughs) And some of Eugene Peterson's students found out that Bono had asked him to go to dinner and they had a mild heart attack and then said, no, 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 you have to go to dinner with Bono. We're not going to let you pass this one up. And he does. And they actually became really good friends. But he declined a dinner invitation from Bono. I mean, if, if I found out that Bono, for some reason, wanted to have coffee with me right now, I mean, I'd, Nick, come on up wherever you're at. Let's, I'm out. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to take a picture of it, and I'm going to let everyone know my new best friend is Bono. Right? We like to associate ourselves with people or things that impress us so that other people will be impressed with us. Right? It's the proverbial, I'm with the band t-shirt. Our hearts crave others being impressed with us. And, and why? why? Why is that? Why do our hearts have this instinct to make everything about us. I I actually think that this can be so pervasive inside of us, it can be so instinctual inside of us that we can even take our faith, we can even take Jesus Christ himself and make him about us. I wanna show you an example of this in the scriptures in Luke chapter nine. Over the next three weeks, we're gonna just do a little mini sermon series called Cross and Resurrection that will take us to Easter on April 1st. And the text that I want us to read in Luke 9 this morning um, is a very pivotal passage in the Gospel of Luke. The Luke, the Gospel of Luke is a eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And it's a very pivotal passage because it's literally where Jesus pivots his ministry from Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel where he was doing ministry, he was teaching up there and he was doing these miracles, and then he literally pivots his ministry and goes to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to go to the cross. And so we're going to start looking at this morning Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. That's what we'll do this morning. Next week is Palm Sunday, so we'll look at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem And then the next week is Easter. But in this passage this morning, we're going to get a snapshot of how Jesus' own disciples fundamentally misunderstood what it actually means to follow Jesus by making it all about themselves. So let's look at this. Luke chapter 9, look at verse 51. So Luke 9 verse 51 says this. It says, when the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. All right, so one of the things you have to understand is that for all of Jesus' life, the cross was looming. 
Jesus knew that he came out of heaven and became a man and was walking on this earth so that he could go to the cross. And Luke tells us that it was getting to be that time for Jesus to be taken up onto the cross. And so he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's a phrase that essentially means he resolved himself to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop him from getting to Jerusalem. But before we read the rest of our text, let me just give you a little historical context here. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he had announced to everyone that he was the Jewish Messiah. And the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. And what the Messiah was going to do was he was going to assume the throne of King David and establish God's kingdom in Israel. So in the Jews' minds, that's what the Messiah was going to come to do. And so the imagery that they had in their heads... Jesus' disciples, his followers, and other Jews of the day, the imagery they had in their head of the Messiah doing that was very powerful, uh, militaristic, aggressive, right? We're going to establish God's kingdom. We're going to overthrow the enemies of the Jews, and we're going to claim the rightful throne. So that's what they're thinking. So even though Jesus had been telling his disciples that he was not going to conquer his enemies yet, but he was actually going to allow himself to be delivered into their hands and killed by them. Even though Jesus had been saying this to his disciples, when Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, there is something in the disciples that's saying, this is it. Jesus is going to go down into Jerusalem and he's going to take care of it. He's going to take the throne. He's going to overthrow the city. He's going to establish God's kingdom. This is it. It's time for the kingdom of God to have its day. So that's what they're thinking. So go to our next verse, verse 52. So Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. No. And they went on to another village. So if you look at verses 52 and 53 here, you have to understand that there's these religious and ethnic tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews. And I don't have time to go into all of that context. Um, but one of the reasons why the Samaritans did not show Jesus and his traveling entourage hospitality and let them stay in their village was because it says that Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem. And the Samaritans believed that the proper place to worship God was not in Jerusalem at the temple, but was on their own Mount Gerizim in their own territory. And so they were offended when people went to Jerusalem to worship. So Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they said, then you can't stay here. So they didn't allow Jesus to stay. So what does Jesus do? He moves on. Let's go to the next village. Let's find a place to stay there. But then in verses 54 to 56, we get James and John, these guys. You know, it's really funny. In Mark 3, 17, Jesus gives these guys the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Dead serious. Go look it up. The Sons of Thunder, right? These guys were the, the hot-headed type. 
Um, when things didn't go their way, they wanted to take care of business. And so you can imagine Jesus' facial expression as he's moving on to the next village to find a place to sleep at night. And James and John go, hey, Jesus, listen, do you want us to call some fire down and consume those people? I mean, you could see Jesus kind of stop and just kind of like in frustration and pain right here, just hold his brow and say, no. What are you, what are you thinking? And it says there that he turns and rebukes them. Now, we don't have the actual words of Jesus' rebuke to James and John. But I imagine it was something like this. James, John, sons of thunder. Do you even know why I'm going to Jerusalem? Like, do you know what I'm going to do when I get there? Yes, I'm headed to Jerusalem to establish my father's kingdom, to begin that. Yes, yes, I'm headed to Jerusalem to eventually take the throne of King David. Yes, I'm doing that. But I'm not going to take the city by force. I'm going to die for the city. I'm not going to the city with a sword in my hand. I'm going to the cross. I'm not here to rain down judgment on sinners, yet I'm here to make available the mercy of God. No, you can't call down fire from heaven like you even have the authority to do that, James and John. I don't know what you're thinking. But are you here to follow me or not? Because you better take a minute to think about where I'm going. Because I'm not headed to Jerusalem so the Samaritans will be damned. I'm headed to Jerusalem that they might be saved. So can we just like stop here for a minute and, and marvel at what happened here? I mean, I want you to understand that we live in a time where the mercy of God is available. And there will be a time where the mercy of God will not be available. The Samaritans straight up rejected Jesus, kicked him out of their village. It was James and John who wanted to get judgmental. But Jesus has set his face on making the mercy of God available. I mean, we live in a time where the available mercy of God is it's here, and we need to make this known to the darkest corners of the earth. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem so he could give his life on the cross in the place of sinners, of people who deserve God's judgment. He takes God's judgment and God's wrath on himself as he died on the cross so that we don't have to. He was buried in the ground, and then he rose again from the dead, having conquered death, so those who trust in his grace and in his mercy will live forever in his kingdom that he's going to establish. Right? This mercy, it's available to every person on this planet, to every person in this room, to every person in this town, every person. And sometimes the church can be a lot like James and John quick to judge and condemn rather than proclaiming the available mercy of God in and through Christ. In this episode with Jesus, the disciples are confronted with what it really means to follow Jesus. Because Jesus was headed to the cross. That's where he was going. The disciples seemed to be preoccupied with how their association with Jesus would make them impressive to others. I think we see that just a few verses earlier in Luke 9, if you look at verse 46. 
Luke 9, 46, it says, an argument arose among those disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. This seemed to be their concern. They had this ungodly swagger about them because they were Jesus' boys. They were ready for the glory of the resurrection and they were about to be blindsided by the suffering of the cross. I think one of the things we see here is to follow Jesus means to follow him to the cross. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a, as a ransom for many. We follow Jesus in that. Or earlier in Luke 9, again, in verse 23, Jesus says, it says, And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, you want to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. To follow Jesus means to follow him to the cross, and the disciples in this moment had a choice to make. Did they just associate with Jesus so others would be impressed with him, or are they going to follow Jesus? And I think that's a question that we can ask of ourselves in our own hearts. Do we just associate with Jesus when it's beneficial for us, or do we follow Jesus? Because in verses 57 to 62, the next few verses in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to make it very clear what it means to follow him. And not only is it a challenge to his disciples, I think it's going to be a challenge to us today. Because the reason why our hearts crave people being impressed with us and the reason why we have the tendency to make things that are not about us, about us, is because everything in us tells us, get this, everything inside of us is telling us that our joy, our contentment, and our happiness is found in creation, not in our creator. This is the lie of the fall. We live in a fallen, sinful world. And the lie of the fall is that our joy is found in what we make of our lives here apart from God. It's the lie of the fall. And Jesus is going to say, hey, in order to follow me, you have to walk away from that lie. If you want to follow me, you have to forsake that lie. Look at verses 24 to 25, earlier in Luke 9. Jesus had just said, take up your cross daily, follow me. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And so we have to be convinced that being a redeemed child of God is better than any comfort and any significance that's found in this world. And here's what I think Jesus is saying in this. What I think Jesus is saying in this is, listen, I'm on a mission. I'm headed to Jerusalem. I have come to serve these people, not be served. I have come to give my life for others. And it seems backwards in this world, but your joy, your contentment, your fulfillment is found in joining me in my mission. Following me to the cross. Forsaking your life here so you can have life everlasting in my Father's kingdom. And so following Jesus is not about living an impressive life here. It's about giving up your life. 
And so Jesus is going to get pretty practical in these next few verses on what that means. He's going to force us to answer the question, do we just associate with Jesus or do we follow Jesus? Look at these verses in verses 57 to 62. It says, as they were going along the road to Jerusalem, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Sure you want to follow me? Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me just say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's pretty brutal. So if you notice three times in these encounters, Jesus is not saying that having a place to lay your head or having an affection for your family is bad. But what he's talking about here is priority. He's talking about rank. Right, I believe Jesus is pressing on us this morning two of our most closely held loves in the world, our comforts and our relationships. And he's forcing us to ask ourselves if following him is most important to us or not. Because it's when we are forced to evaluate how tightly we hold on to these things that we're confronted with if we just associate with Jesus or if we follow Jesus. And in these three encounters, I've just, I have two challenging questions that I want us to consider when it comes to evaluating our lives. And so let's look at the first encounter. So that's verses 57 to 58. It says, again, as they were going along that road to Jerusalem, someone said, hey, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So here, we see someone with with zeal and passion proclaim to Jesus, I will follow you. I want to follow you. But what Jesus wanted to do is make sure that this person understood exactly what he was saying because Jesus was on his way to the cross. Hey, do you know where I'm going right now? See, these two verses here might be the most challenging verses in the Bible for American Christians. We're the most prosperous nation in all of history. We represent some of the most prosperous generations in all of history. So we don't just have comforts. We have luxurious comforts. No matter where you land on the socioeconomic scale of our town, compared to the globe, we are very wealthy. And so this verse shouldn't make us feel guilty for having homes and having beds and having comforts in our lives. It's not saying those are bad. But when we say to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, one of the things that we must understand in our economic context, we just got to get this, because we have more, we have more comforts, we have more wealth. What this means is that we have more in our grasp that we have to hold loosely. And here, Jesus is not saying that following him means you hold 10% of your comforts loosely and the other 90% is yours. He's saying you must put it all on the table. You know, if you have a, a good job at a good company, it pays well. 
God very well may be calling you to be a follower of Jesus in that job. But you're a follower of Jesus before you're an employee of that company. And faithfully following Jesus in that company might mean you have to hold employment loosely. The lie of the fall says that the more you advance in that company, the better your life will be. But Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you have money in your bank account, there's nothing wrong with that. Praise God that there's money in your bank account and that he has provided for you. But you are not just a regular person with money in your bank account. You're a follower of Jesus with money in your bank account. And the lie of the fall says that the more you have in savings and the more you have in retirement, the better and more secure your life will be. But Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Hold it loosely. Generosity is not something that God wants from you. Generosity is something God wants for you because it's where your joy is found. If you have a home with rooms, uh, beds, uh, a heater, a kitchen table with food on it. Praise God, that is such a blessing that God has provided those things for you. Don't feel guilty for having those things. But you're not just a regular person with a home. You're a follower of Jesus with a home. And the lie of the fall says that your home is your domain. That's for you to rest. That's for you to have what you want. That's for you to escape. Your life will be better if you have your own home. And Jesus says, listen, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Hold it loosely. What does it mean to follow Jesus with your home? So here's the question, and it's a hard question that Jesus is confronting us with, and I think we have to wrestle with this, is what comforts in this world are we unwilling to give up to follow Jesus? Where where do we cross the line and say, "Whoa, whoa, that's too much? Or let me put it this way. What comforts must come first before we pursue joy? One of the hardest areas of growth for us as followers of Jesus is the forsaking, is forsaking the lie of the fall. That our joy is not found in this world. But it is in following Jesus to the cross. Encounters 2 and 3, which is verses 59 to 62... Read those one more time for us. It says, to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this seems even more difficult. What in the world is wrong with burying your father and saying goodbye to your family? This is a hard one. But again, I think we have to understand that Jesus is not saying these are bad things, but he's challenging priority. And in the immediate context of these verses, so the immediate context of Jesus is on the path to Jerusalem. Jesus was headed to the cross. One of the things that I'm sure Jesus is saying is, listen, Passover is coming, and I'm the Passover lamb this time around. Right? I have to get to the cross. I'm the last one. So he was on a mission, and that mission to the cross was urgent. He had to keep his time. And the challenge that we have here is not with the value of our loved ones, but the urgency of the mission. 
We're obviously called to value our loved ones, but do we have urgency for the mission that Jesus is sending us on? And so this question that this this makes me want to challenge us with is this. What commitments and obligations in our lives take precedence over following Jesus? What's more urgent in our lives than following Jesus in the mission that he's invited us on to join, to declare the available mercy of God? Because again, listen, the mercy of God is available to all who trust in Christ. There may, there, and there will be a day when Christ returns and God's mercy will have been dispensed and he will then judge all who do not know Christ. So what is more urgent? What takes more precedence over following Jesus to the cross and declaring the available mercy of God to the world? If I can be honest with you, if I examine my own heart on this, I think sometimes what's more urgent to me, what takes precedent, is what people think about me. Sometimes what's more urgent to me is avoiding an awkward encounter with someone. I'm sometimes more committed to the social norms of our culture and what they say is weird and what's not weird than following Jesus. And in that fear of sharing our faith with others, we are giving into the lie of the fall that says that your life will be better if you're the normal one and not the weird one. But Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. We are called to follow him to the cross and forsake all that the world would prevent us from doing. We have an Easter service coming up in two weeks. Uh, This is a time where so many people who usually don't go to church, go to church. People who don't know Jesus will show up at church. I mean, it's low-hanging fruit. And we're all hoping to, you know, we're hoping to plan a fun, family-friendly Easter service on the Herndon Town Green over in town. If the weather cooperates, if not, we'll be right here. But either way, we want to invite people to come to this. We want to use this opportunity to declare the gospel to people here in Herndon. So this is just an easy way to apply this or to think about this because we need to invite our friends, we need to invite our neighbors, we need to invite our coworkers to come to our Easter service. It's a simple opportunity to forsake our social commitments and fears that prevent us from reaching out and following Jesus in this way. But you know what's interesting? When we talk about the comforts that we need to hold loosely to follow Jesus, right? Our economic context means that we have more in our hands to hold loosely than maybe others around the world. But when we talk about our commitments and our obligations that we need to hold loosely to follow Jesus, our political context means that we have less to lose than many around the world when it comes to following Jesus. We have less to hold on to. I'll never forget when I was a college minister at George Mason University and we had a young girl who grew up Muslim in Pakistan and In our ministry, she came to faith in Christ and was baptized. And it literally meant being disowned by her family. We actually had to form plans of protecting her from violence. We might be seeing an uptick of persecution or people who don't like Christians in our country politically. But compared to the world, we are blessed in that we do not have to forsake that much to follow Jesus. Compared to our brothers and sisters around the world. So let me ask, what obligations and commitments in our life take precedence over following Jesus? 
Or another way to ask it is, what obligations and commitments must come first before we pursue joy? Our joy is found in following Jesus to the cross. And it's so easy for us as followers of Jesus to be like the disciples, ready for the glory of the resurrection, but blindsided by the suffering of the cross. We follow Jesus to the cross and then into his resurrection. The the mercy of God is available to us. It's available to those who have not trusted in Christ. It is available to people like us who seek to follow Jesus, even if we do so in a clumsy and inconsistent way. We all need his mercy. We all need his grace, and it's available. But we must become a church that consistently reminds one another that the lie of the fall is always seeking to deceive us into trading in our joy for broken cisterns that hold no water. And so to conclude us today, I want to conclude with some encouragement from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what Paul says to us starting in verse 50. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood, the world, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, church, Grace Hill Church, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, as we look at these challenging words from your son, Jesus, Lord, I pray that your spirit would do something in us to convince us that our joy is not found in our comforts and our joy is not found in our worldly commitments or obligations, even if all those things are good things. And Lord, that might be something that we know in our head, but in our everyday life, it's so hard to live that way. It's so hard for our hearts to be convinced of the fact that our joy is found in following you and not in the things of this world. And so Lord, we just, please help us in this. Pray your spirit would be strong in us to believe this and to live this out and to hold on to our comforts and our obligations and our commitments loosely so that we can follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be blindsided by suffering in this life. Jesus said that 
if anyone were to follow him in this life, that that would mean suffering. Because we live in a broken and a fallen world and the kingdom of this world does not want your kingdom to prevail. So Lord, help us to be strong, trusting in Christ, knowing that he has purchased us for himself, that Lord, we will never be kicked out of your kingdom again. And Lord, help us to follow you faithfully in this life. And Lord, we praise you and that the way that you've designed us, that that is exactly where our joy in this life is found. Help us to experience that, Lord, and to honor and glorify you with our life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.